I talk about it because I want I want to help Christians in all my contexts recognize that there's more than one covenant relationship in the Christian life. Typically, they only think of marriage. So Christians feel like the only relationship I can have that's committed is marriage. You can immediately say, oh, wait, slow down. <laughs> There's more committed relationships in the Christian life than just marriage. Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. While we're largely shaped by our side B, post-liberal, localist, and multi-ethnic perspectives, and we'll explain each of these perspectives on the show, we're eager to engage a variety of voices. Welcome to Communion and Shalom. This is TJ. And this is David. On this episode, we have a guest, a friend of ours, who is also the project manager of Communion and Shalom. Mm -hmm. So we've been really thankful for uh, her assistance in just organizing our workflow a little bit. So, uh, Elena, share more about just who you are and why you're here. Hi, yeah, I'm Elena. I joined David in co-founding a Christian community house a few years ago and got involved with some of this conversation that's happening on this podcast. I'm interested in being a part of today's conversation as someone who's a little bit of an outside voice. The things that we're hoping to discuss today, I think, are pretty new topics to me and many other people. And as someone who's not queer, to have additional kinds of questions to ask around that. So... Yeah, looking forward to what we can discuss. Yeah, I'm glad to have you around because TJ and I have been talking about a lot of these conversations for many years. And today we get to hear specifically from TJ on covenant brotherhood. So TJ, do you just want to start and share what covenant brotherhood has meant in your life? What that uh, look like? Yeah, sure. So as David Frank has said, I'm here to talk about covenant brotherhood. I'm particularly talking about my covenant brotherhood because I actually have a covenant brotherhood with four brothers. And I'd love to say more. This is often a conversation in the side B community about particular kinds of committed um, relationships that could help side B Christians live their life faithfully and flourish in the church. So I'm here to talk about one, this particular type of covenant brotherhood. I think there are different species or subtypes of covenant brotherhood, and I'm going to talk about my particular one in this podcast. And we might explore the other types in the future. So let me begin. First of all, a covenant brotherhood, I'll define it as it's, it's a covenant or a promise which forms brotherhood. <laughs> that's obviously using the terms directly, but that's kind of the most brief way of talking about it. So rather than a biological brotherhood that is natural, but through a covenant, a mm -hmm. conjoined agreement, or how would you describe covenant? Uh, it's a promise of union. Is how I would talk about it. Promise of union and communion. So it's not contractual. We could distinguish it because con contract usually has an, a sense of like a sense of economic exchange. 
even though uh, Covenant Brotherhood has that as well, it also is usually larger, more holistic about what its intentions are. So I will say, just as preliminary co comments, Covenant Brotherhoods have existed throughout the world. They currently exist. They're not exactly well known in the contemporary U.S. or the West, quote unquote, but they're, they're still prominent around the world right now. They've also particularly existed in Christian history at different points, even though it's kind of a, a history that people don't talk about very much. So I made, I have a covenant brotherhood again with four brothers. Also, I made this covenant brotherhood about four years ago now, but I first met my brothers when I was around 22, 23, around that age. And I met them where I was working. And then we basically had a spark and we connected very well. And so then we started living in the same place. This is in my African context. So all my brothers would be, um, they're Africans. We lived together for about five years from the time that I had known them. And over time, we we just lived as brothers and just sort of the, the, all the common ways that our brothers would live in that context. We lived together in that way. We lived in the same house, shared meals, you know, we provided the sort of emotional support brothers provide. We did things together. We went to the village, economically interdependent. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what to say, but exactly what else to say, but all of those normal things of brotherhood. So in 2016, around that time, I, we started talking about this. I mentioned in my previous episode where I talked about my story, that the story of David and Jonathan was particularly prominent in my own life. So there was... That, that prominence was part of what brought me into this particular interest in this place. It was interesting to find in that context, covenant brotherhood is now rare in part because um, a certain type of evangelical Christianity has taken hold. And it's a, the type that really despises the past, I guess you can say. So they, um, covenant brotherhood there was seen as from the past and pagan because the, the Protestant Christianity that came to that context didn't really have categories when they arrived in that context for covenant brotherhood any longer. And also the covenant brotherhood they had was a blood brotherhood, which is a pretty common, common way of having covenant brotherhood in the past, at least. They would exchange blood in some way. And then of course, bloodborne diseases like HIV, AIDS, other diseases kind of made the exchange of blood and bodily fluids less interesting to a lot of people. But at the same time, one of the most interesting is, interesting thing is was that um, their father, who's my covenant father, he also made covenant brotherhood with a close friend of his, and he's the only one of his generation that we know in that particular context to have done it. And we're the only ones that we know of our particular context to have done it in our particular age range. But there's we there's a fair number of really of older men who are seventies, eighties, nineties, who have done it as well when it was more common back then. So we talked about it and then we decided to do it. We organized a large gathering in the village at their house. And so we had, there was approximately 500 people there. Whoa. Yeah, it was big. And then we was overseen by a bishop who was part of the same ethnic group, as well as numerous other priests and pastors. So as part of this, there's a particular type of token that is exchanged. So I... Basically, their dad, my covenant dad, his covenant brother <laughs> gave me these particular tokens to you so that it's seen as he passed on to me some sort of, it's like a spiritual connection. He passed it on to me 
these particular tokens. They're, a, they're an agricultural crop that's made in a certain way. So I had them in preparation to make these covenants with these brothers. At the same time, it was also, there was a part of this ceremony was me entering their ethnic group at the same time. They're like sub-ethnic group, like their clan, you could say. So that, they were kind of tied together. So when it happened, we basically, we said the words of David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, 42, which is, I love you and may God be witness between us forever. And then we exchanged, I gave them these tokens. And then you know, people cheered and were happy. <laughs> and previous to that, they had readings from David and Jonathan and a scriptural reading in the service. This was not in the church. It was in at, the, at home, at the house. So that was, that's a distinction that is relevant in that context. So much to say, but I will, I will start saying, so we did not exchange blood, if that wasn't clear, because we talked about it. And in that particular Christian context, it didn't make sense because of some exchanging blood, what kind of meanings that it had in contemporary times in Christian terms. You look in the past, sometimes Christian covenant brotherhoods did exchange blood, even at Christians, but we did not. So ours was just an exchange of words and an exchange of this token. Even though it was not a surprise at all, because we'd been living as brothers for you know five years prior to that, so it was known that we were together, that we were part of, we were united in one. When I gave them the token, I knelt down on my knees, which is seen as extremely submissive in a way oh, that's like very res extremely respectful. That they were that's not common, so it was a surprise because that's not in that particular place. Men don't kneel to anyone really. So I made a covenant with each of them technically, but it's also one covenant because they're of the same family. So then people ask me that sometimes, European Americans ask me like, is it one or many? And it's just not a relevant question, <laughs> I don't know. So after that, I can say our relationship didn't change much in material terms because we still live together as brothers, but everyone knew about it. There was a new, it was socially, socially understood. So people would talk about it, ask about it. For a while, it was the like the, the news of the village that people were talking about because it wasn't common that this had happened. They were surprised. People who didn't know us were surprised. After that, yeah, it was great. The easiest thing to say is that there was a honeymoon phase where I was really happy. But maybe about two months later, I was like, eh, what did I do? Because I gave them a covenant that will somehow be united forever and that God's between us forever, our households forever, you know, as long as we live. And it's continued until now. And I don't, plan to break the covenant. I don't think they do either. But now our relationship is really, it's, it's just a continuation, but we're just brothers in that way. It's the easiest, we're just brothers. It's, I have other siblings as well, and it's similar to that. But I know that we are always united and we're always able to support one another. And I know I can always turn to them if I need help. Yeah. It's tied to the particular ways brotherhood is conceived in that context and kind of the way I fit in as well. Someone who's part of that context and also separate from that context is sort of a like a person whose life is rooted in different places. Now And now I, I talk about it with a lot of my friends, for example, in the U.S., and they often don't really understand what, I'm, what I mean, even though they, they understand the words, they know the words that I'm saying. They don't, they don't have an image or vision for what it looks like. When I talk to people in this context, they kind of know what it looks like, even if they haven't done it, because, you know, the, the grandfathers did it in the past. 
So there's some knowledge of what it looks like generally. But here in the U.S., the knowledge is less, and there's people that have images. Think about it. The only covenant relationship they basically know in the U.S. is marriage. And they might recognize that, oh, I guess I make a covenant to the church when I join and baptize. And they might recognize, oh, I guess Godparenthood is a type of covenant. So there, there are other covenants that exist, but this one is, uh, for some reason, not a common covenant among Christians in the U.S. It's not a common covenant in this context, either my context, but it's known. So the, the easiest thing to say is it's, it's like brotherhood, but in some sense stronger because it was chosen and it's always, it will always be recognized. <laughs> I don't know. People know about it. They'll ask me about it. If you have a brother or sister, they'll ask you, probably ask you about that too, but they know you didn't choose. So it's easy for brothers and sisters to um, fall apart. But this one is less easy because God is between us. Additionally, in the past, there used to be curses connected to it. Like if you betrayed, there was a curse. We didn't have a curse, but because God being between us was enough to be our, our witness. But yeah, I don't know. It's just highly respected in that context, even if it's not common any longer. It's, it's really significant in my life. They're the closest to me in a lot of ways in my life, but they're not, but in other ways, they're not the closest to me. Similar to, I think, how you have a brother or sister who's very close to you in certain ways, but they're not necessarily close to you in every way, and not necessarily your best friend, quote unquote. And my brothers are sort of the same. <laughs> We're always together as a baseline of togetherness, but they may not always be my closest friend in every sector of my life or in every way. I'm, I'm also actually thinking about making a covenant brotherhood with another person who's probably my best friend. And so there's a conversation that I'm thinking about and I'm, I talked about it with him and he'd be open to it, but it's still kind of an ongoing conversation, what it would look like. Oh, I, I should probably talk about uh, my sexuality in relation to this. Uh, first of all, all my brothers would be classified as straight if they were in the U.S. They'd, that'd be the label they'd, that'd be applied to them. That, label, that category is not relevant in that context. And there's some knowledge that I'm not straight. But if you've heard my story in the previous episodes, you kind of realize it's there's complexities and I just talk about it in other places, at least there. So this is a particular covenant where there's both queer people and straight people. These are the categories we use in the U.S. I don't know more there is to say about that because we're not, we're not sexually involved. There's not really sexual desire implicated in it at all. Anyways, I'd love to turn to my friends to ask questions. How many of them are married? None of them are married currently. But they're probably, they probably will marry eventually. Yeah. Almost certainly, if they can, they will marry eventually. Yeah. And they hope I marry as well. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask more about the context, because it sounds like this is pretty specific. And then maybe we can back up and yeah, it's okay about how it would or wouldn't apply to other things. Mm. There are so many things to ask about. So some of this is an ethnic context and a family context. Mm -hmm. so you talked about both of those things. Yeah. And then it's kind of specific to that model mm -hmm. of a covenant brotherhood is known in this village or this part of Africa or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that people at least recognize it and know it's a thing. Yeah, that's right. I'm interested in, yeah, just in that whole thing. I guess you talked a little bit about it. Would that model look different if it were just one person instead of four? Because these are four biological brothers that you, mm -hmm. you were joining a family. Yeah. Is that a typical part of that model or was that just, it just happened that way? Okay. First thing, they definitely think that this covenant brotherhood is part of family formation and that it's connecting different families. 
So it is part about family growth. Mm -hmm. And of course, marriage is also that, but this one is particular mm -hmm. as well. Also doing that. I think in the past, they often did one person making covenant with one person to connect families, which I think that answers your question, yes. Yeah, I mean, is yeah. this like a truce kind of like our families are tied, therefore we cannot fight in some kind of really historical context? Yeah, in the past, sometimes that was part of its goals, yeah. I mean, in the same way that marriage is a socioeconomic alliance, mm -hmm. this is also that. But it usually has, it also has seen as having spiritual and emotional implications and aspects as well. It's not just the socioeconomic alliance, but it is that as well. <laughs> Different question. Yeah. Why did you want to do this? Why Why do you feel, and it sounds like you're considering yeah. pursuing a covenant brotherhood vows. Is that the right word? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, with someone else. Like why pursue that? Because you're already living with these brothers as mm -hmm. a family. Mm -hmm. I assume that they see you as family in some way. Like they definitely do now. That official. Oh yeah. They, you mean yeah? They did, and they definitely they definitely do now for sure. Okay. Why make it official? I think I just had to recognize what was there. Like this seemed to be so significant. I think for all involved that we we had a way of making it more significant and committed, so it could be publicly recognized, and there would be no no question or confusion why we were living life together or or we're trying to accomplish. So there was that. At the same time, it also it also seemed like a I don't know, it seemed like a desirable way to build my life and build kinship. Also. I think those are the two reasons. Both mainly to recognize what was there and that this did exist and how to how to make it how to strengthen it and make it more significant. And also to be just part of building kinship and building bonds of love. I think those are the prominent, most prominent reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's why I chose it, because I desired both of those things in particular. Or I recognized one and I desired the second. So if you had 12 best friends, would you eventually want 12 covenant brotherhoods? <laughs> or is there a limit? <laughs> there's no... In this tradition, there's no... I mean, there's no limit in this particular tradition of covenant brotherhood that we're, we're working within. But I, most people didn't do many just because it's hard to have many covenants with many people mm -hmm. because you, it's more, the more you promise to one person, the more you can feel if there's ever issues, you can feel like you can't accomplish all of them. You can't meet all your promises or something. So that is your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as you think about, you know, potential fifth covenant brother, uh -huh. does that, affect your current covenant brother vows or like would they do they need to give permission are they now like covenant cousins <laughs> yeah that's a good question my covenant my potential brother is also part of the same ethnic group as they are different clan different like sub-ethnic group so yeah i'm i actually will if i if i make the step forward i will ask my covenant brother's permission because they i shouldn't be bringing a covenant into our family without them Pre, like approving it basically or saying it's acceptable and if they they would recognize if, he, if I'm a current brother with him that he he's also their brother yeah even though he's probably he's less close to them than I am but he's still their brother he's part of our common 
like clan, basically, you could say. So it's, it's again, it's family formation. I'm building the family in a bigger way. Do you ask your the dad of these covenant brothers? Is he involved in that as well? I could ask him. Or any other type of kind of like clan leadership? Yeah, he's, he's involved. And I could ask him, and I might ask him, but still he... The main, the main ones to ask are my brothers in this particular context. What obligations do you have to these brothers as in, in a covenant with them? Mm-hmm. I'll try to specify or delineate them pretty specifically. It seems obvious to me, but I'll try to do it. <laughs> okay, at the beginning. <laughs> Whatever you can, yeah. So, of course, if they ever needed someplace to stay, they could stay at my house, which is common brotherhood behavior. I'll always give them food. I will economically share with them if I have it. I'll be there for advice. They can always come to parties I have. They would know my friends and my people, my family that are not them. They will, we will just generally support one another. We'll pray for each other. Yeah, I think those are the kind of most broad ones, but also just live life together most generally. And these are these are seen as like these are seen as obvious like they're seen as obvious ways any sort of brother would live life together. They seem straightforward to me. It also means that you have some sense of you need to be in the same location as them physically when possible. Is that true? Mm, that's complicated. I'm not sure yet how that we're not we're all not sure how that's going to play out exactly. Okay. Yeah, but. Our covenant endures even if we are not always in the same place every single day of the year or every single year or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in, it's in the same way that your your brother or sister could move far from you, mm-hmm. but your your connection still endures. And you'll probably, hopefully you'll see them again, even if they're far from you for a time. So it is the same. The covenant brotherhood, just how you're talking about, it's like officializing the brotherhood that was already being experienced and lived out mm-hmm. reminds me of in our culture people like oh you know this person's like a brother to me or they're they're a part of the family they come on family vacations mm-hmm. and it's it's that and then they were like a brother and we made them our brother yeah it <laughs> is we, like that yeah we, we made sure that they were always a part of the family and so even if things got rough or we weren't going to let distance uh, or situations separate that but we're going to Keep them, keep them in our family. Mm-hmm. Kind of like adopting them. <laughs> yeah, you could use a, you could use verbs of adoption for describing what happened between us as well. We sort of adopted one another, you might say. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We don't we I don't have to say anymore that they're like my brother or something because they're just my brothers, straight up. That's what I say, and I don't feel the need to explain to everyone. <laughs> I'll just say, brothers. Okay, that's enough. Then we'll, we'll move on. So, and I feel the same even in that context, or if I'm in the U.S., I'll just say, I have brothers, these are my brothers, and that's enough. Curious. Yeah. Is there a mom involved in this family? Yeah, of course. She just hasn't made it into the story yet, so I was curious. Hey, when I was entering the, the, the clan, there was a particular ceremony where both our, our mom, such my covenant mom, and our covenant dad, which was part of bringing me into the family. So it was a way of basically I stood between them and they prayed over us and that was the entrance. She's also there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I just mentioned the father because 
our father, again, was the one who had previously done a covenant. In this particular cultural context, the covenants are mostly known among men. It's not a thing that women did in this context. Or if they did, or they was thought that they did it, they were connected to the covenant brotherhoods of their husbands or their brothers, they became connected to others through that connection. It's a patrilineal society. So the women are being connected through the their male kin to other male kin through these connections. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but she's there and they were happy. But she was one of the ones who, she's a Christian and a, kind of a devout Christian. And she was one of the ones who pushed against exchanging blood, even though it wasn't really a prominent part of the conversation, but she was part of that process in particular. It sounds like a really important event in your life. Yeah, what is? A lot of it. It is, and it still does. Even though, as I mentioned, I I still have other friends who are closer to me in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about another covenant brother as well, which will probably change my, if, if it's accepted, in some ways change my relationship with my brothers. Because in some way, the person I'm considering doing another covenant brotherhood with is a closer like friend to me in a certain sense of some of my brothers. We mesh better together. We're more compatible as friends, basically. But, yeah, but I mean, our brotherhood will endure the covenant brother, the other ones that I have, or the ones that I have now. And maybe I'll make another one. Who knows? A different one. <laughs> How do your biological kin wrap into this? They're, what does your biological family think about it? They're connected to, in some ways, it's hard for them to understand a little bit. And they are I don't know. Basically, they, they're also connected now. They're part of our larger network. It was, again, they're, they've entered into this family as well. In a similar way to how marriage bridges families, and that's, his, that's his, one of his chief goals, not the only goal, but one of his chief goals, this, these, this covenant brotherhood also does the same. I think arguably all covenant brotherhood does that. So it's connecting different families into one. This is a specific story, specific part of your life, specific context. You're also pointing out that it's happened in various cultures and times and so on. Why, like, why bring this up now? Why on this podcast? Why do you talk to people even less about it? Like, mm-hmm. Is there something from it that you think people can share, can learn from? Hmm. What what transfers, what doesn't? How are you thinking about that in other contexts? Well, well, one thing, I think there's a lot to say on this. But the first thing I want to say is I talk about it because I want I want to help Christians in all my contexts recognize that there's more than one covenant relationship in the Christian life. Hmm. Typically, they only think of marriage. But of course, there's covenants of, like we mentioned, covenants of joining a church, godparenthood. Sometimes lay monastic orders or like even an intentional Christian community, they have covenants of sorts or covenants. Monastic orders have covenants. Clergy have covenants. Adoption is of adoption like I'm adopting a child has covenants. Also covenant brotherhood has a covenant. So sometimes when Christians feel like the only relationship I can have that's committed is marriage, you can immediately say, oh, wait, slow down. <laughs> There's more committed relationships in the Christian life that are part of the Christian social theory or Christian social thought than just marriage. So that's one thing I want to say. Two, I I really think that this sort of relationship can be helpful for side B Christians in particular. 
because a lot of us do want to have committed relationships. And we're usually more interested in committed relationships with people of the same sex. But at the same time, they're trying to walk in a holy way, right? So this sort of relationship, I think, can help, can be part of the process of kind of living a more flourishing life. If you know you have someone who's a committed brother or sister, that can help you live a faithful life and also flourish by having someone who you can depend on, someone who's there for you, someone who will prioritize you even first, someone who is, you know, when you go home, there's someone's there, someone you can call when there's need. So I'm trying to expand the conversation that these relationships have existed in the Christian tradition, have existed in the world, and do right now exist. <laughs> and I'm an example of a Christian side B man who has a covenant brotherhood that exists right now. So that's the second reason. Mm -hmm. Third, and this one is more general, but I think this is relevant also for even Christians who we call straight. Even straight Christians, sometimes they're married, sometimes not. Even they want a covenant, like sibling of some sort to help them, you know, flourish in life, have a friend, be able to have someone who listens to them, who connects with them. So I'm hoping to help revitalize this sort of relationship, maybe long-term, in the church in general. So not just specifically, just for Christians, just recognize there's more relationship, not just specifically for side B queer Christians, but also for even the church in general. That this is a, arguably a time-honored Christian tradition that's been lost in some way. We can try to revitalize it for the good of the church moving into the future. I think those are the three reasons why I talk about this, and I want to talk about it more. That's why I'm recording this podcast, so it can become a topic of knowledge and conversation more than it is right now. There's so many things to follow up with on that, but one of them I think would just be, you've talked about it being a part of the Christian tradition. Mm. Can you talk about more examples of that? We've got David and Jonathan. Sure. Uh, I mean, feel free to start there, but like. David and Jonathan is the clearest biblical one even though often it's not recognized exactly. And I don't know if it's because Christians are not reading their the Bible enough or if it's because, <laughs> or if they don't have the conceptual categories in the West to interpret this as what it is, a form of covenant brotherhood. In the language that we use in my context, it's explicitly covenant brotherhood. That's the, the explicit translation because that's what it was. Anyways, there's, there's more to say. One of the best resources that I know is this book called Brother Making in Late Antiquity in Byzantium, Monks, Laymen, and Christian Ritual by Claudia Rapp. And she has this whole great book talking about various examples of, uh, sometimes it's called the Adelphopoesis, which is brother making in Greek. She, does, she has many examples in this book about it happening from very early in the church to even in contemporary times. And one of the best things that she has is that in the back, she has the particular prayers and services that they did for the Covenant Brotherhood ceremony. And that kind of shows how it was theologically conceived of in these communities. So I'm the, first, I'm the point to this book as a, a great kind of source of examples in the Christian tradition of how Covenant Brotherhoods and Sisterhoods have existed. But there's also, I can, I could give a few more specific examples if you wanted, but I would first point to this book. And some of my specific examples would describe other types of covenant, brotherhood, or sisterhood. 
We may talk about them in the future, future podcasts. Well, we wouldn't want to spoil that now. We might not want to spoil that. <laughs> but I'll, I can also say, if you look at the, the historical anthropological record, it's common in the world that covenant brotherhoods or sisterhoods sometimes have existed among different ethnic groups in some way or another. Because people seem to have a desire to, to make community relationships with people of the same sex, not just people of the opposite sex for marriage, you know? And again, these are often their socioeconomic alliances. They fill that function. They fill emotional functions. They're part of spiritual union, pursuing God together. They fill all these functions. So, yeah. And of course, some of them were chaste. Some of them were not. The Christian ones were meant to be chaste. Yeah, you can't. There's complexity even in that. What is the biblical foundation for covenant brotherhood outside of the story of David and Jonathan? Like, is this a thing the Bible says, go forth and do? Or is this like, we see a model of it? We definitely see a model of it in David and Jonathan. We also see how there's in different, in different verses of the Bible, we hear the brother who you loved is your own soul. We see Jesus, how he talks about how greater love has no man than this, that a man would give up his life for his friend. So basically there's a pretty prominent theme of friendship is important. There's a brother who shares your soul. And that's kind of how subsequent theologies of friendship have emerged. And that's also been that, David and Jonathan, and also the relationship of the apostles with Jesus and the apostles themselves and their unity in pursuing the gospel and the mission of God. All of these played different threads, theological threads or principles that were emerged in these Christian theologies of brother-making and committed friendship in general. So it's more like that. There's a model in the scripture and we saw how friendship was important. So when the gospel rooted in particular societies, they started integrating that with probably pre-existing covenant brothers or covenant sisterhoods, or occasionally I, I assume it emerged in some ways just through the Christian influence predominantly. It's not explicit in a Korean form in the Bible that this is the way, but it's basically an integration of kind of the biblical themes and the biblical model with kind of how people were living life in their particular cultural communities. That makes sense. Yeah. Can we go back to more about the cultural context? Here in the U.S. Sure. I'm, I'm thinking like, this sounds like an interesting model. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's very embedded within a culture that understands it, supports it, has a framework for it. Mm -hmm. And what does it look like to transition that model to somewhere else that has no framework whatsoever for it? So we have a surrounding society that maybe sees it and doesn't understand it. You have maybe two or more people who have made a covenant, brotherhood or sisterhood, who don't necessarily have any other models mm -hmm. to follow. What's your thought on that? Well, my first thought is it's a revitalization of, okay, there's a lot to say because there's a lot of context in the world. For example, I can go to other parts of the African continent and talk about it. And even if they don't have a current existing relationship, they can kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Now, and there's, you can go to other contexts and it can be the same. If we're going to shift to the U.S., it's sort of a revitalization because they're, in the Western tradition, basically, this has existed. 
is kind of my point, even by pointing to this book, Brother Making Elite Antiquity in Byzantium. No, Byzantium's East, but whatever. It has existed. So there's a revitalization movement. It stopped for some reason. The, the Reformation was part of it, but even maybe before then in some places, it's not clear why. It might've been part of the, the Reformation's focus on marriage is so good, or the Reformation's diminishment of sometimes the celibate life. Like those might be threads, but there's more to it. I'm not sure. But my basic point is, yes, there is a history in the past. It has to be revitalized, even if it's not currently known in contemporary U.S. Now, how it's going to be complicated, but I think it's a work that we've already started. So at least in the side B community, there's been conversations about this for a while, at least as long as I've been around side B community, which is, you know, kind of 10 years in a certain way. But if it happens in the U.S., it will be, it will kind of have to work itself out over time. Mm -hmm. It won't be understood at first, but eventually there might be a critical mass that could produce more understanding in general. But this, for example, this podcast, I want to try to provoke more theologizing around this area or more, or going back to the sources, engaging these or rethinking this or examining the, all of the types of relationships around the world that have existed, are existing. So, yeah, I can talk more about, if you want to talk about the U.S. context, I can talk more about it in specific. Those are my most general thoughts. Yeah, I think I'm just, there, it sounds like part of the challenge is doing something new in a social context that doesn't understand it mm -hmm. from the outside. Mm -hmm. I think another piece of the challenge is not necessarily having any models mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, marriage, to use the most common mm -hmm. model that people have. People have a lot of models, healthy or unhealthy, around them to say, oh, here's what a marriage relationship looks true, like. True, true. And to not have it at all, like, what does that look like? What is, I don't know, what does accountability look like? What does growing and flourishing in healthy ways look like? Uh -huh. Some of it's just, like, do you know how to be a good friend, it sounds like. Yeah. Do you know how to support someone in a way that's committed? Yep. Um, but it's, it is also a different model that's beyond either of those things because yeah. it's being named specifically. Yeah, I, sometimes, occasionally, I can say occasionally I hear people in the U.S., usually European Americans who are often side B or something like that related to side B, and they talk about covenant brotherhoods. And it's hard for me to understand them or hard for me to exact understand their worries, sort of, because I can't quite connect to what they're talking about as worries. <laughs> Like, a lot, for example, a lot of them worry about, what's that word they use? Oh, exclusivity or something. David Frank, is that the word they use? Yeah, exclusivity. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> I think about my own covenant brotherhood, and it's just not a prominent, I don't know exactly what they mean. That's not a prominent fear I have. Exclusivity and what? As if my covenant brotherhood has a particular... They, they rank in a certain way of a high level of priority in my life. So they exclusively, they rank in that level of priority in my life. Well, you have one covenant brotherhood with four brothers. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, you, uh, it's not exclusive because it's already being shared. Yeah. And it's kind of family dynamic. But I think. It might be different if it were just one person. It might be. But even if I make my covenant brotherhood with this other friend that I'm considering, he'd be one. Even though, of course, we're, there's unions of families and all that mix, but, but I, I still don't understand it easily. I think it's 
because we have a very strong sense, you know, in the general U.S. culture of, I've heard it, it's described as a serial monogamy. That is kind of how we do relationships, um, marriage, romantic yeah. relationships. Yeah. Well, even outside of like marriage is what I'm saying. Oh, like, I see. They are romantic. Even like hookup yes. culture kind of. Yeah. Where, you know, once you're dating someone and you're with them and then you shouldn't be dating more than one person. You yeah. Know, like you might be dating person after person. People in the U.S. distinctively do not like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they distinctively do not like having multiple people no. at once. And so we have this very understood sense that like, that is exclusive, but we don't have that sense of uh, concern with, you know, multiple friendships at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, multiple bowling partners or something, unless <laughs> someone gets a little jealous, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they'll be like, dude, we're just bowling partners, like, back off. And, and so if you make a, this really, you know, again, we're, we're not used to covenants happening very much outside mm -hmm. of marriage. Mm -hmm. And so then we see another covenant happening. And if it's just one other person, I think it would be like, it looks like marriage. It smells like marriage. It sends off all those radars. Mm -hmm. And the only way, to be, you know, be like, well, it's not like we're having sex or having kids. Like, but it's this exclusive relationship. I roll. Yeah. <laughs> here's the thing. Americans are weird because they exclusively pile everything on. Okay, not only Americans, but there's there's exclusive piling on of like every everything in one relationship. But it's easier, it's easier in this, like my context, because marriage is obviously distinct because of sex and children. But it's not, but all the other things don't make it distinct. It's not distinct that you, you don't only distinctively live with your wife. You can live with, you live with other relatives in your house. You don't distinctively economically share with your wife. You share economic with others in your life and <laughs> your friends and your relatives. You don't distinctively emotionally share with your wife or your husband. You do that with all of the people. You don't distinctively only tell your wife or your husband about your plans in life. You do that with multiple people. So I'm just saying the U.S. and other and related cultures are weird because they pile it on. And and I, I think you're right. People in the U.S. see that. But it seems like to me a category flaw. Like you're, you're not, your categories are just wrong from the beginnings. So you're just mm -hmm. categorizing this as marriage, even when it's not and especially when it does not distinctively have a key part of marriage, which is sex and kids. I almost wonder if using an adoptive language, like, oh, this is my adopted brother. Mm -hmm. We adopted each other as brothers. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're in, in such tight community with each other. Sure. Maybe that would work. Orient people's sensibilities to be like, oh, adoption. I know something about adoption. It's this chosen family relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should try to reclaim covenant. Mm -hmm. I think it might send off the radars. Mm -hmm. Associations would be different. Yeah. I'm all for being prudential. Like you make wise decisions using the language you have. What does prudential mean? A practical wisdom, which could be appropriately used at certain times. Ah, okay. I'm all about using prudence to decide what terms you should use. So if you need to say adopted brother, I'm down. I would, if I need to say that about my covenant brothers, I'll say it. I don't care. If I'm trying to just get someone on board enough that they can generally interact with us in a normal way, I'll use it. But yeah, but it's not the words that we would yeah, typically they're, use. They're not untrue words. It's just not the, the primary way you would describe yeah, it. Yeah, not untrue. It's kind of similar to how Saidi B is prudential about sexual identity language. Like you can have some words which you might switch to at time just to communicate as best as you can, like broadly. 
even though they're not the main word you would necessarily use. So this is a similar dynamic or tactic. Something else that confuses me is this idea sometimes that people can have bad reasons for covenant brotherhood. I've even heard occasionally that they have to have these very high lofty reasons. Like we are going to pursue a common goal that's magnificent together. And I was surprised when I hear some of those things, because I think my covenant brotherhood, we just do it to share life together. We don't necessarily have a deep, a deep overarching common vocation by the power of our brotherhood together we will solve world hunger yeah yeah that's not that's not what we're doing we do not have that can be maybe a, you're not aiming maybe we're not aiming high enough and <laughs> that could be a, that could be a good goal i admit and i can we can praise god if that's your covenant brotherhood but i don't or sisterhood but i don't think that's a necessary i don't think it's a necessary objective to do this to have such a thing at these lofty Lefty goals. We'll be the best scholars in the world. We'll solve world hunger. We're going to become the next president of this place or whatever. Like, I don't think you have to have those goals. You think you need to have any common goal? Yeah, you, you should. Well, yeah, it's a Christian covenant brotherhood. So you have to have the goal generally of following Jesus in his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you have to have the goals of just this solidarity and mutuality that I've kind of outlined in all of the different aspects, socioeconomic, political emotional, probably intellectual to some extent, spiritual. Because you do have that common goals, but I don't think there's a need for a lofty goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've heard occasionally side B people talk in terms of this need of a lofty goal. And I think it's fine just to generally have the basic goals in life, to just have kin in your life who can support you. I think that's fine. No problem. What does the side B conversation look like around this right now? Like, are there other people who talk about it, as you were just saying? There are other people who talk about it. The complexity is, I don't know much you want to go into this exactly, but the complexity is used, the more common term that's talked about this, which is adjacent to this, is celibate partnership. Hmm. So I see covenant brotherhood as a higher category, more overarching category. Celibate partnership is a subspecies of that, of covenant brotherhood or sisterhood which is focused on you you together, the pair of people are one another's main life partners. And know? right now you're describing celibate partnership. Celibate partnership, yes. In my covenant brotherhood, we are definitely life partners, but my brothers are likely married. So in one sense, we're not necessarily each other's main life partners, even though we are we are each other's main life partners in just a general sense, but not as specific in a celibate partnership. It makes sense to me why people would talk about exclusivity if they are thinking about celibate partnerships then. Maybe that one. But covenant brotherhood in general, I think it's broader than just a celibate partnership. I think that person has to be recognized. And then once we have that discussion, then we can have a broader idea of what it was. If you look in the past, again, Christians in the past, a lot of the people did covenant brotherhoods were married. Not all, but a lot of them were married. Some of them who were, did something like this were closer to what we call celibate partnership now. It's a closer relationship in that way, like monks or monastics who did something like this. But a lot of people were just people who weren't in the monasteries. They, some of them, a lot of them were married. Sometimes one was married, one was not. Just depended. There's a lot of permutations. But we're basically right now in Sunside B community, 
there's a com- this conversation is ongoing, at least the circles I'm part of, but it's mainly focused on this particular type of celibate partnership. Less focused on what I'm describing, even though there obviously is interrelations between the two. What I really like about digging deep first into adoptive or covenant brotherhood mm-hmm. as kind of the foundation to build off of, because then mm-hmm. you can think about all the different ways that brotherhood does look. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of actually some neighbors of ours, two brothers live together and uh, one brother is single and one brother has a wife and kids and granddaughter and they all live in the house together. And I can like guarantee that they're not making, you know, like life choices separately from one another. Mm-hmm. If like one of them was like, hey, I'm going to move the other one would move with them. Their lives are intertwined because they're brothers. And, and you know, that's what the, this brotherhood has looked like. I don't remember if they have another brother or sister, you know, who lives somewhere else, but it would be very plausible that they could. And the family relationships would just be diverse, but all meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, and so the celibate partnership is one where there's just that more likelihood to be like, we are, we're sticking together and more likely to be thinking about those moving around conversations <laughs> together. Mm-hmm. But not that that's completely absent from, even as you're talking about with your covenant brothers, that there's still this kind of conversation of what does it look like for me to be across the ocean? And mm-hmm. is that long-term? Is that short-term? Yeah, it's so true. In some sense, I think we need to take down this nuclear household fixation that a lot of people have. <laughs> and kind of ex- going after all the precious things. I'm going after all the precious things. <laughs> and kind of expand the moral imagination about what are the sorts of kinship that are possible in Christian life and how to live a faithful Christian life. Mm-hmm. So by that, you mean that a household, literally a, a home, mm-hmm. can be more diverse than just uh, husband, wife, kids. Yeah. But it could include grandparents, cousins, uh-huh. uh, covenant siblings. Yeah. And of course, historically, it has. Paul's not talking about the Western nuclear household of one man, one woman, and 2.5 kids in the Bible, nor is the Christian tradition usually engaging in that same thing, even though it has kind of become set in the Western mind that this is the way things are, and that's what Paul is talking about and the Christian tradition is talking about. That's not actually the case. They are expecting households which would look different than what we do in where, again, it's not just husband, wife, and 2.5 kids living in a big house alone, far away from their family. They're not, that's, not, that's not what's going on in human history or the Bible or anything. And for your covenant brothers, uh, how many of them, is it, would it be strange for them to even move across the country uh, from each other with that? Is it very normal for them to stick pretty geographically? close to each other. Yeah, it's normal. It's a bit complicated, but yeah, it's normal. It's a little bit desirable. The hard part is in Africa, in the hierarchy of prestige, there's a lot of prestige in leaving the country because of ideas of being modern and being international and trying to leave and do other things outside and get tons of money. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of complexity in your question, so it's hard to answer directly. But yeah, in principle, they'd want to live near, near each other. They'd want me to live near them as well. But just in the sort of world we live in, it's complicated sometimes. I want to ask more about what this looks like in a side B context. 
I don't know what it looks like when people are having these conversations. But I'm wondering, how does sexuality play into this conversation of brotherhood? Celibate partnership is another, I think, specific subgroup mm. of that. But even just generally, you know, you specifically called out that the four brothers that you are in a covenant brotherhood with are all straight mm -hmm. by Western standards. Mm -hmm. How does that play into what people are thinking about engaging with this model? Okay. So I'm first going to separate celibate partnerships out of this question. Okay. Because that's something else. Or that's a larger conversation, longer and larger. Okay, just talking about covenant brotherhoods and sexuality in the U.S. context. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first of all, I will say in my covenant brotherhood, I guess there's, there's been times of sexual attraction on my end, but they've been pretty minimal. And this was when we were younger. There hasn't been a lot. It, there has not really been anything notable in our after our covenant brotherhood for some reason. I don't exactly know why. So I will say that it, it had occurred, but it was never a prominent part of my life or their lives either. So it can happen in a relationship, but if you have a covenant brotherhood between a straight person and a queer person, I assume that will sometimes emerge. I think that's okay. Just like any relationship, you can work through it if needed, if that's a prominent thing. It's not, I don't think that's a deal breaker by any means. It just is the way things can work. It can be the same way between sometimes there's a man and a woman who are friends and there's sexual attraction that emerges, but marriage is not on the, not really an option for them for whatever reason. That can also be fine. Yeah, you can work through that. And I would jump in and say, you can work through it. Sometimes people don't work through it or don't work through it well, but it's possible. It's possible. It's possible to work through it well. It's possible to work <laughs> through it well or badly, depending or badly. on how you approach it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about a covenant brotherhood between two queer people, for example, in this context that so we're talking about side B, mm -hmm. I assume that it can work in part because I think in all these, you should ideally have a spiritual director or a priest or pastor who kind of guides you in this. I think that'd be the ideal. And this is even for covenant brotherhood, not talking about celibate partnership and covenant brotherhood in that key, but in the key of just covenant brotherhood. It'd be good if you had a spiritual director to guide you in this. But at the same time, you're likely to have other friends who can also help be around you and support you. Perhaps I don't know the best way to answer your question because... It just seems so obvious to me from my experience that it could work. Mm -hmm. So an acquaintance of mine bought a house with another friend of his, and I think they would both identify as same-sex attracted or something like that. Mm -hmm. But he's like, he's kind of like having a straight housemate in the way that we relate to each other because their friendship proceeded in part before they were out. And, and so it's just like sexual attraction has just never been a big part of their friendship specifically. I think like you were saying, TJ, of in your own covenant brotherhoods, there were times, you know, earlier on where uh, you had to either work through it or it was just acknowledged like, oh, you know, there's like some sexual attraction at times to a brother. But it was never a predominant dynamic. Yeah. And, and so for... Uh, these two guys, they've purchased a home together and are at least short midterm making a commitment for a few years to live together in that and to be brothers. Essentially, I don't know if they've exactly used that language, but, you know, they're friends living together in a home. Some Christians 
are so confused why we would identify as queer or same-sex attracted or gay and and then get very concerned that we're being in some type of close friendship or cohabitating because I don't know how to put good words to it, but we're like, we're fine. Just because we put, you know, these labels on ourselves to describe our experience does not mean that this experience dominates every single one of our like, relationships or no. interactions. Yeah. It's notable enough to describe, but it it's not so all-consuming. It's not necessarily so big of a deal that it's always going to be a problem, it's just depending on different people's temperaments, backgrounds, experiences, temptations. As you were saying, like having someone to give that third-party perspective of godly wisdom is, is very important because mm. we can be rash and have blind spots but they're not like doomed for failure just because yeah, of all. a specific bentness in our sexual orientation not at all especially in the type of covenant brother that i'm describing i think that one's much easier than maybe a celibate partnership it still has been helpful for me and for me as a queer person just to, I don't know, I, again, I maybe I mentioned this in the past, but I think queer people have like a special affinity for someone of the same sex, kind of the most general way of describing it. Sometimes it emerges as sexual, but not, it's not only that. So in some ways, this having this relationship with a committed relationship with other men or brothers, this kind of helps me, I don't know, feel like I fit or as if my, like my energy is being directed in the right way or just flowing well. I don't know how to say it exactly, but there's, it just, it fits well for me in some way, even if sex is not part of our life at all, it just works. And I can only appreciate that. And I, I really think it could be helpful for others. Now, I, of course we can say straight up, there'll be, there'll be failures. If this became more common, this will, there'll be a margin of error or failures that will happen sometimes. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean you throw the whole thing out just because there's some failures that would probably occur. And I will also say it will take time. If this will become more widespread, in any sort of cultural community, it will take time to like build the, the psychological infrastructure and the social norms around it and the customs in order to actually have a cultural script for this to be very viable, right? And that's just the way human beings are. <laughs> Sometimes things take time. Christians can... If they want to be so immediate, like, okay, things should be perfect now. You just converted, okay. You just brought this new thing in, be perfect. Immediately, everything should be fine. That's not the way life works often. A lot of things are journeys over time of kind of developing and walking towards Jesus in the new Jerusalem, being purified, battling sinful passions. It takes time. It also takes time for social forms and social norms to work at how. Question. Yeah. If someone's like, huh, covenant brotherhood, it's kind of like, gaining another brother, or maybe someone doesn't have a, you know, a sister or brother, mm. and they would value that type of kind of peer intimate family relationship. Mm. What would be your commendation? Would it like maybe start with one of your closest friends, you know, and like invest in those relationships? What would be your encouragement or, or guidance for someone who's, you know, interested in like thinking about where covenant siblinghood would show up in their life. 
Good question. I guess I'll first be US focused. I think what you need to do is first go, I would start with your closest friends and really pursue them and invest in them, invest in that particular friendship if you think that there'd be closeness. I'd also immediately say you should kind of together, you should be start engaging the resources that I'm trying to outline about this historically across time in the Christian tradition. Because you at least, you just need to know that this has existed and you need to know the patterns of thought that are being under, they're undergirding this. And you should know kind of the prayers and the, the liturgies around this as well. I would say that immediately as well. Are there other resources besides the book that you need? I can share other resources. This is the best one, but the best one for the Western, the Christian context is the best one. Okay. But there are other resources, yeah. Also, I would say search for clergy who... And this might be hard. Search for clergy who would be open to having this conversation and thinking through it. I think it's super important because you eventually will want someone to kind of spiritually guide you in this, right? And I would usually look to the apostolic traditions. You need people who will, you want someone who will not immediately close it down, who will listen to it, who maybe knows about the history of this type of relationship, or who will at least pursue the conversation with you together, right? And you need someone who's not immediately skeptical, like marriage is the only covenant in the church. You need someone who's not like that. So, so basically someone who can like think beyond, you know, the past a hundred years. So if you can find someone like that, then we can start talking about, <laughs> then you can start talking about what, how to, what to pursue. And then you guys have to talk about yourself and see if it could be possible because there's real, there's real commitments. I don't know how to say this. <laughs> you actually covenant with someone else and you're you're bound together. Even maybe if God's the witness, you're bound together as long as God is faithful and he's faithful forever. So you're bound together. And yeah. And of course, covenant brothers can be brothers can be betrayed or end in different ways. But yeah. And then of course over time you should decide that you should start gathering friends around you and probably relatives around you would support you in this endeavor. And ultimately, I would hope that you would have a ceremony, the Covenant Brotherhood, blessed by the church. So that's going to be part of the process as well. So I see all of those things. And I guess you should probably exchange some sort of token. To a, a different podcast who had an episode recently <laughs> on covenant friendship and, and kind of some biblical norms for the, the things... Dr. Paul Eddy, mm -hmm. who talks about how there's a yeah promises and yeah. signs of the covenant, yeah, witnesses, a to token or something. Yeah, interesting. I was surprised when I listened to that that all of those elements he described are actually in my covenant brotherhood. So it's just interesting. He provided in a very general way. Uh, this podcast is very a specific instantiation of covenant brotherhood. So it's worth listening to, definitely. Well, thank you so much, TJ for sharing about these relationships that have been really meaningful in your life. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that at least for me, when coming across ways that people structure their lives or their relationships of coming to it with a kind of curiosity and mm -hmm. like, oh, what does it look like? Why did you decide to do that? Mm -hmm. And help, you know, creating open imaginations mm -hmm. on these topics. We come from a very individualistic culture. So I think there's a lot of need in a lot of ways to be thinking about what, you know, not just 
covenant relationships, but in general about how we can be intertwining our lives together. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a valuable one. Thank you, and thank you so yeah, much I mean, up for. <laughs> we are so appreciative that you could join us and ask questions. Thanks for having me and yeah. letting me join. And for everyone listening, I'm sure that I did not accurately represent all the people's questions. So if you have more questions, thoughts, comments, we'd love it if you send it in on the website that we'll link to in the show notes. Or via okay. email. Feel free to do that too. Yeah, we'll we'll put some links for ways to send those in. But yeah, things that we can cover in future podcasts or just things you're thinking about. We'd love to hear all of it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, everyone, side B or side B allies or whoever you are, let us keep talking about this sort of relationship and keep exploring it, exploring it historically in the Christian tradition around the world. Just see how it could be helpful for the whole church. So I hope this conversation continues on this podcast and even continues outside the podcast with our listeners. I think that's all. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye. Bye.